Welcome to the Love First Podcast. We're so excited that you have joined us. If you are returning, you know you're in for a treat tonight as our guest is Dr. Robert Robbie Luckett of Jackson State University, uh, Assistant Professor of History there, and also uh, the uh, Director of COFO Museum. And if you'd like to visit Jackson, you would be greatly blessed uh, to be a part of that experience, as well as the Margaret Walker Museum on campus there. And so, Dr. Luckett, Ravi, we're so thankful that you're back with us. Um, if you are here for the first time, you might be wondering, all right, what is the Love First podcast about? Well, our purpose is to catalyze courageous conversations to revolutionize the way that we love each other. And so thank you for joining us. We would ask you to like, subscribe, and share, and we'll get right to this conversation. Robbie, let's pick up where we left off. Uh, we were talking about the dilemma that we sometimes faith, face uh, when people of faith begin to examine and reflect on the values they hold, the symbols they've used, the symbols they defend, and begin to discover that the things that they've been holding pretty tightly to are inconsistent with their faith. Can you talk to us a little bit about how we navigate that dilemma? Yeah, it, it's a hard one. It's one that um, we have to grapple with. You know, speaking, um, thinking about the change of the Mississippi flag, one of the, the men who was at the center of that change was the Speaker of the House of Representatives in Mississippi, um, Philip Gunn. And he said, he actually came to this a few years ago wow. and said that very specifically, it was his faith that told him that the Mississippi flag needed to change and that it was not representative of his Christian values. Wow. Um, and this is a man who uh, I do not share much with politically <laughs> and do not agree with many, <laughs> about many things um, with, um, but I believe him. I don't, I, this, I, I, I don't think I'm not cynical about that statement for him. I do think he actually grappled with that yes. and said, came to this conclusion that this needed to change several years ago. And he took heat for it several years ago as the speaker of the house of representatives in the state of Mississippi. And so it is um, something that each of us has to, absorb and think about and understand how our quote-unquote privilege, how white supremacy has informed those of us who are white Americans especially, right, and, and given us opportunities that others don't always have. Yes. And, and, and as a faithful person, um, grappling with that and understanding that religions um, and, and churches specifically have at times misappropriated Christianity and, 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 and misappropriated. Christianity was used as an excuse for slavery, right? Um, and, 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 and similarly for Jim Crow, 
and um, and and so Christians certainly aren't perfect, right? <laughs> um, and 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 so examining how those cross currents of, of history and power intersect with faith is an intensely personal thing, and and and, and really, I I believe faith is an incredibly personal thing that each of us has to grapple with on on our own, anyways. Yeah. And our relationship with with a higher power and a higher being in God, and as a Christian with Christianity, that is a very personal task. And then to to embed that with the meaning of race and white supremacy and grappling with what that means for white power and my own existence. That's complicated stuff, and that's heavy stuff, and it's hard. And none of us want to feel guilty, right? The white guilt to go with white privilege and systemic racism. We we don't want to feel guilty about things that we don't think we are, we're responsible for. But if we actually engage this history, and if we learn, and if mm. we do walk, or at least attempt to walk in the shoes of our black brothers and sisters. And, and, and brown brothers and sisters and, and other marginalized groups, we, we start to understand how this system plays differently for them than it does for us. Yes. And, you know, when you brought up, uh, it was Speaker Gunn, right? That That's right. The state. When you brought that up, you know, I think it is important for us to realize that faith has a, a millennia's, uh, his, millennia history of being transformative, that... Uh, Somewhere in that place where we allow ourselves to be submissive to this greater vision of our creator and then to think, what are the implications of just being created? Or from right. a Christian point of view, what are the implications of, of a, a, a savior for all and so on? Those are very powerful implications that we grapple with. Absolutely. And, and they're hard. And, and this issue of race is an incredibly difficult one, too, especially for those of us who represent what has been the source of power in this nation from the beginning. Yes. So let's talk about this uh, a little bit. In your doctoral work, you highlighted the, uh, a transformed, transformed and transformative uh, person, Jyoti Patterson. And one of the things that I deeply respect about you and the people that you engage in the discipline of history is the emphasis on local people that, uh, in fact, Bob Moses and others stressed the essentiality of a grassroots movement. And, uh, and while there were national leaders, uh, the work was being done, boy, on a local level, uh, with people like Medgar Evers and, and, and uh, uh, Emma Sanders that lived right, right where they were working, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer. And so one of the things that I'd like for you to explore with this a little bit is the impact of, of localized engagement, localized engagement, and how you pick Joe T. Patterson as one of your examples. So, well, so... <laughs> One, let's understand that those national leaders like Martin Luther King and others, at some point, they were local leaders, that's right? right. And they, they get lifted up by a grassroots movement, uh, right? And, and so they, they, they kind of rise to the top due to the local, right? 
Um, when Martin Luther King becomes the head of the Montgomery bus boycott or the, the, the spokesperson for the Montgomery bus boycott, he was essentially unknown yep. and was chosen because of that, right? Because he didn't yep. have political baggage in Montgomery because he was young and, um, you know, he came to um, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery on the heels of a, of a pastor there named Vernon Johns had been the pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church and was fired essentially by his pastorate because he was too active in the movement in Montgomery wow. and was, um, and that became a threat to, to some of his, um, um, some of his churchgoers. And so he gets fired and Martin Luther King comes on. So the, the long story short, the, even the people we recognize as national leaders at some point start local. And I do think, and I ascribe to the type of history where the study of the local informs everything that we need to know and learn and, and history changes over time and place. And we can't just essentialize all of American history and say, everything was this one way. Yep. We can't essentialize all of civil rights history and say the movement in Jackson was the same as it was in Atlanta, as it was in Montgomery, as it was in Tallahassee, right? It changes over time and place. And, you know, just for, for my work, the single most important historical work of scholarship on the movement in Mississippi is called local people by, by the historian, John Dittmer, um, which remains kind of the, the standard bearer for civil rights history in the state of Mississippi. So I am very much informed by that. And just as that history works that way for activists, I think it works that way also for segregationists. Mm -hmm. And we understand that change. Now, how did I come to studying Joe Patterson? Well, honestly, I was beginning my graduate research and work looking at the movement in Canton, Mississippi, and a local activist there named Annie Devine. Annie Devine was uh, a member of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party delegation. She was contemporaries with Fannie Lou Hamer and, and that group. And with Fannie Lou Hamer and another activist named Victoria Gray, she ran for Congress in 1964 and would take a challenge um, all the way to the House of Representatives in 1965. Um, there's a longer story there. But in the midst of that research, I was back home in Mississippi and it was around Christmas time and I ran into a, a man and we got to talking and I was telling him about my research. And he said, well, you know, my father was the attorney general of Mississippi during the civil rights movement. I said, oh, your father was Joe Patterson. <laughs> the, the, reason, the reason I knew Joe Patterson's name is because as the state attorney general, he's the named litigant in every piece of civil rights. You know, every law, civil rights lawsuit is the NAACP versus Joe Patterson in the state of Mississippi, right? So I knew his dad was. His dad was attorney general from 1956 to 1969, right? So talk about like the, the swath of what we consider the, the modern movement, right? Um, and he said, yeah, I got a bunch of his papers up in my attic. Would you like to look at them sometime? And so <laughs> that was where I went from um, my earliest research around a local activist in Canton, Mississippi, to studying segregationists. And what I came to realize is that um, part of the kind of the, the, the narrative that's out there again in this kind of national consciousness that we have is that, you know, the movement began in 1954 um, with Brown versus Board of Education, and it ended in 1968 with Dr. King's assassination, right? Like in the, in, right. in the middle, you get the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, and we won, basically. Um, and there's this assumption that, that somehow the, the people who opposed black advancement the, the strongest, that somehow they just disappeared, 
or or just said, "Oh yeah, you guys were right all along. We're sorry," yeah. uh, and that that's not exactly what happened, right? They didn't all just move to you know Tahiti or something, um, and instead they remained. And there was dialogue within the segregationist community around how do we maintain as much power as possible. Mm. And, and the real question, the dilemma that I talk about in my book is you have the staunchest of segregationists who are lying in the sand, no, never, we won't budge an inch. And those like Joe Patterson, who when James Meredith integrated the University of Mississippi in 1962, Joe Patterson said, yeah, let him in. Guess what? The University of Mississippi, they may now call it integrated, but he would say, Patterson would say very specifically, one black person at the University of Mississippi does not make it integrated, right? And, and instead he said, I would argue, he has this quote somewhere in my book, where I would argue that James Meredith is the most segregated black man in America, right? Because and he was the one. He's the one at the University of Mississippi, right? Yeah. And, and, and what Joe Patterson realized was, if you let this one guy in, you thwart everything that became the Meredith crisis, the riots that took place there, the, the deaths of the two journalists um, who were killed, right? And you, you prevent a situation as what happened where the federal government is forced to come in and have a showdown with state authorities, which the states have been losing since the American Civil War, right? <laughs> they're, they're, you were not going to defeat the federal government. And which and so, we're dealing with right now. Yeah, right. And so there's this dilemma of a choice that segregationists had to make. Do, do, we, do we give an inch, right, and, and maintain the vast majority of our power? State sovereignty. Exactly. Or do we say no, never, and, and, and lose it all? Because the, the Ross Barnett, the, the infamous segregationist governor in Mississippi, those guys were easy targets for the civil rights movement. You could look at them, you could listen to them, and you could say, those are the bad guys. But when you had more, and let me use this term carefully, moderate segregationists like Joe Patterson, because he was still a segregationist and still a white supremacist and about maintaining white power, but more moderate and, and less physically dangerous. Joe Patterson was not a man who was going to lynch you and would could condemn lynching, right? But saw that he could maintain more power by not assaulting you and by giving you some modicum of progress. Yeah. A, a perfect example of his politics in 1965 was the creation of a, of a desegregation plan for public schools in Mississippi called Freedom of Choice, right? And the idea was simple. We're going to give parents the freedom to choose where they send their children to school in a school district. They'll have the freedom of choice. So if you're a black parent in a school district in Mississippi, you could choose to send your child to the formerly all white school, the school that has all the best resources, has the best you know, science labs, has the biggest library, the best sporting facilities. Um, you know, you can, you can choose to send your child to that school. The problem was, and what these white supremacists like Joe Patterson knew was what black parent was going to be the first to choose to send their child to a formerly all white school. Some did. Yeah. And that also played in the hands of segregationists because they could then go, see, our formerly all-white high school now has two black students. So we're integrated. 
We're integrated, just like Joe Patterson said, yeah, send James Meredith to Ole Miss. We're integrated, quote unquote. And, and those children then faced repercussions of being in those schools that also get ignored, right? They were frequently resegregated in those schools. So they had their own tables in the lunchroom, their own tables in the library. They sat in a different part of the classroom, right? You would have segregated proms. You would have segregated um, student bodies, right? Uh, Presidents and government and and things like that well into the 1980s. You would see this in public education throughout the South, not just Mississippi. But this idea of freedom of choice, we're not going to talk about segregation. We're not going to, you know, talk about white supremacy. We're going to talk about giving parents the freedom to choose. And, and that was a very democratic thing on the surface of it, right? But a brilliant strategy to maintain segregation. And so it's this evolution that, that takes place. And the dilemma is the choice that white Americans and white Mississippians specifically were making between the hardline segregationists in this more moderate form of conservatism that I'd argue is where we get kind of modern Southern conservatism today mm-hmm. and, and the descendants of that. And that very specifically in Mississippi, um, our previous governor who just um, ended eight years as governor in January, we had a new, a new governor inaugurated, was a man named Phil Bryant. And in 1970, when public schools finally desegregated in uh, Mississippi and throughout the country, thanks to the United States Supreme Court and a decision called Alexander versus Holmes, which was Holmes County, Mississippi, finally enforcing Brown in 1970. Uh, 16 years later. 16 years later. Yeah. So an entire generation of children never see true desegregation, right? You do have freedom of choice in there. And essentially Alexander versus Holmes, among other things, throws out freedom of choice and says, that's not really desegregation. Um, When that happens, the private school movement explodes in Mississippi and the segregationist academies rise. In fact, you're hard pressed to find a private school in Mississippi that was founded before 1954. There aren't very many. Most of them are parochial schools and one all-black boarding school, the Pineywood School, that's been around since the early 1900s. Um, but in this explosion of, of um, private academies, segregationist academies, many of them funded by the segregationist organization, the Citizens Council, um, white students flee to them in droves, including in Jackson, uh, a segregationist academy run by the Citizens Council called Council McClure Academy. Citizens Council McClure Academy. Our previous governor, our immediate past governor, as of just a few months ago, um, Phil Bryant in 1970 was in high school in Jackson Public Schools. His parents withdrew him and enrolled him in Council McClure, where he graduated in 1973. Um, and from an explicitly segregationist academy, um, now that wasn't his choice. He, right. he, his parents made that choice for him, but I would argue that if we look at decisions that he has made politically, particularly when it comes to things like public education, we can see reflections of that same type of dogma that was being espoused by the likes of Joe Patterson and, and, and Phil Bryant is very directly connected to that history and how he was educated and, and how he was raised. And most of us cannot escape how we were raised, right? I certainly didn't, <laughs> and I, I consider myself lucky in how I was raised and the experiences and the, the perspective I've had. Um, but there's very much a, a direct connection and lineage there. So let's think through something then about what you've just shared with us. 
you have this the kind of this ongoing massive narrative, right? And we, uh, fascinating enough, in the last two episodes of the Love First podcast, we had a, a fellow Jacksonian uh, with us who did a fantastic job, one of your friends, uh, Jerry Mitchell. Oh, yeah. And absolutely. so as we, especially, you know what I was thinking of, Robbie, when you talked about uh, Joe Patterson's son offering you that box. I love Jerry Mitchell telling us uh, the story of finding, you know, evidence from these cold okay. cases and so on. But let's think through this for a few moments. So this narrative just keeps traveling through American history. As you mentioned, as long as the narrative of white supremacy and the subjection of marginalized people has been a part of the nation. So also has the civil rights movement been a part of the nation, people always opposing that, always fighting it in various iterations along the way. But something we've uh, noticed, we've had a lot of talk about, and I've heard you uh, do a few interviews on is, well, then what just happened in the last 80 days in this country, what just happened? If you look at the, the, the changes that have been happening in your own state with the flag changing, uh, here in Georgia, we finally have a hate crimes legislation. Some of these things have been on the back burner for decades. Right. And, we, and, and these things are unfolding. And somehow it seems like uh, there's some kind of a unique moment in history that's unfolding. Can you speak to us maybe a little bit about the impact of Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, COVID, all of this kind of coming together and how you might see it playing out in some of the changes that are finally uh, kind of at a tipping point and emerging in significant changes? Yeah, I mean, we are at a really incredible moment of time, and it's really been this avalanche of, of events that have taken place in the last 90 days since March, right, and the closing of America with the coronavirus, and in particular and specific to the social justice movements that have really gained so much traction in the last couple of months, as a nation, we were at a place where we were quarantining, we were isolated, where we were injured emotionally. Yeah. And, and many of us were already kind of raw with that emotion due to that social isolation and, and the distancing from, from each other and our loved ones and our friends and our work and our communities and our faith homes, right? Um, and so in many ways, I believe, the nation was primed in, in important ways for the responses that you saw. And I would add here, the, the, the federal and state level responses that have been so poorly managed in terms of the coronavirus that has led this tragedy to explode in ways that it is not in any other part of the world, right? Right also came to a point when you have Ahmaud Arbery, you have Breonna Taylor, and then George Floyd, yeah. right? To where not only are we on edge and raw with this kind of emotion already, 
we also see and understand that our own government, that our elected leaders have played a role in creating it. And then we are grappling with talk about trying to understand what is systemic racism. If you watch the video of George Floyd dying and don't understand how that system of power led to his murder, it was a, a very tangible moment where people of, 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 of particularly white Americans finally said, aha, there it is. And, and, and we're watching having to focus on something with fewer distractions. Exactly. And we're all watching it. And, and I would add here too, there is a tie, right, to the civil rights movement. And there are these moments in American history, many of which are tied to media. For, for Can me, you talk yeah. about that a little bit? Can you give sure. it? Because one of the things that I hear people say is, you know, this has always been happening, but we are just now capturing it on social media. But you have a different take on that. Yeah, no, it's been going on for a long time. And some of the most seminal moments in American history, particularly in, in the last 50 or 60 years in terms of social justice, have been due to images, right? So for me specifically, I think it's rooted, um, goes back to Emmett Till and, and his murder. Uh, and, and that not just his murder, but the fact that his mother had the courage to bring his body back to have an open casket funeral and to allow Jet Magazine to publish images of his brutalized body in Jet Magazine. If you were black in America in 1955 and 1956, you saw an image of Emmett Till's body. And, and, and for, for your, your viewers on this podcast, I'm guessing most of them have probably seen that image, but I guarantee you the first time you ever see the image of his body, it is seared in your mind forever. forever. You, you, you never forget that. Right. And that and moment especially with his mother, Mamie right there, knowing she had the choice to not allow social media to broadcast the brutalized body Absolutely. of her 14-year-old son, but she chose to do it. And so social media had a profound impact. That, that image arguably is the first social justice image to go viral. I mean, it really does go viral in a very literal way. How did it, it impact that generation of, of uh, future uh, civil rights activists? That, that's right. And almost to a person, and some of my earliest scholarship was around this, looking at these activists who were Emmett Till's exact age, right, in that generation, who grow up to be the young leaders at the, at the advent of the modern movement in 1960 with the sit-ins and the freedom rides, the leaders of the student nonviolent coordinating committee. He is John Lewis's generation, right? Wow. Emmett Till is the, he's the exact same age as Muhammad Ali and Muhammad Ali will talk about the moment he realized that Emmett Till standing on a street corner in Louisville, Kentucky, when Cassius Clay realized that Emmett Till was the exact, they had the exact same birthday. Oh, and, and the impact that had on, and we think about Muhammad Ali as this transcendent person in terms of, of not just sports, but of course, social justice, right? All of these people, you can go back and they will testify to the moment in time that they saw that image and how for them, it, it, it catalyzed their consciousness in a way that made them realize that they had to do something. And so it changes the generation. Yes. And this happens repeatedly. John Lewis, let's talk about the... Um, the Selma to Montgomery March, right? The images of those activists 
crossing the bridge to be yep. met by state highway patrol in Alabama, right? Alabama police and, and being brutalized. Yeah. Those images, in a very real way, lead directly to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Birmingham, dogs, <laughs> fire hoses. Fire hoses, police dogs. And so there are these moments in time where change comes because of media and social media and how these images do. They wouldn't have used the word viral in 1965 or in 1955. But it very much is a, a, a similar phenomenon. Media wasn't as ubiquitous as it is today. Not everybody had a right. cell phone, right? No, no. Um, but it still played a similar role and had a, a similar power. And I think you see the same thing happen with this moment in George Floyd. And it is just intensified because of the coronavirus pandemic and because of the, 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 the lack of, of leadership around responding to the pandemic in our elected officials and in our elected bodies, both federally and on the state level. And so we were primed um, to have that response. Now, you might be the first person that I've heard actually give us any silver lining to COVID. Right. (laughs) I'm not really meaning (laughs) to to make us feel better about COVID, Uh, but but it was this um, kind of perfect confluence of events. Now, it, the, the question is, are we going to bring substantive change? Right. Uh, and, you know, in Mississippi, the flag was, and having it come down was a victory in so many ways, but that doesn't substantively change the lives of poor right. Mississippians. Right. Right. And so we have to maintain the momentum, and will we perhaps? And, and I would say here, too, it is good to know that once again, it is a generation of young activists who are at the forefront of change, right? And just like John Lewis and others were in 1960, the the people who are really pushing Black Lives Matter and other social justice reform movements, they're younger than I am at 43, right? They're they're young people. We had the largest single-day protest in Jackson, Mississippi, just a few weeks ago since 1966. Since 1966, and it was led by a recent high school graduate, a young woman named Macy Brown. She put it together, right? Um, And and I was there, and it was this remarkable moment. And it's, uh, again, just, it it is, I think, something for us to be hopeful about, that there is a younger generation that is once again at the vanguard of, of the movement. Okay, so let's let's uh, follow this out a little bit because you know something I thought of is another one of our mutual friends, Dr. Jerry Taylor. Uh, he was on the podcast about a month ago, and he and I, uh, I think, were born about eighty days apart, and we were both reflecting on uh, April fourth, nineteen sixty-eight, in our young lives, where seared into our memory was a scene of Dr. Martin Luther King on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. So see, that also had that social media impact on us. But you mentioned the largest single rally in Jackson since 1966, uh, following up on James Meredith's uh, uh, singular walk originally, um, on his way to uh, kind of uh, uh, represent hopefully voters a- advocacy and voter registration. A few days into his personal march, he gets shot 
That's right. Uh, and can't continue the march in 1966. They end up in Jackson, uh, right there in your hometown, with how many people showed up for that 66 march? The, the, the estimates vary, but probably the best range that I've seen is anywhere from 25 to 30,000 people. And think, I, I've heard descriptions of that, of people that were there, and them describing that feeling of looking in every direction they could look, and realizing that all of these people had come together and were kind of saying, hey, things have got to change right here, right here at home, but we cannot uh, uh, have a, a, a podcast with you and not talk about May 14th, 1970, 48 months later, and uh, how this even impacted your spring of 2020. So take us oh, back wow. to May 14th, 1970, uh, and give us a little context. Uh, 10 days earlier at Kent State, give us a little context there, and talk about how that even manifested itself in May of 2020 of this year. Um, one of the places of engagement that I've been blessed to have in our community at Jackson State since arriving there 12 years ago has been in this community around the events of May 14th, 1970, and what we call the Gibbs Green tragedy at Jackson State. Gibbs Green being Philip Gibbs and James Green, two young men who were murdered on our campus the evening of May 14th, 1970. And that community of people who have been often, uh, frankly, forgotten in American history. Um, overshadowed. Overshadowed, often, thanks to Kent State, frankly. Um, but working with those people and lifting up their stories has been a great blessing for me. Um, so um, we mentioned a, a former U.S. congressman from Mississippi, an African-American during Reconstruction named John R. Lynch. Um, there was a street named for John R. Lynch that ran through the middle of the Jackson State campus, Lynch Street. Um, and white motorists were notorious for using it as a thoroughfare from their suburban communities in West Jackson to downtown and to their jobs. And I say notorious for using it because they would often shout racist insults at Jackson State students. Again, we're historically black college, right? We're today 92% African-American, then probably closer to 100% African-American, right? Um, they would throw things at Jackson State students, bottles, rocks. Was it one, one woman even run over? There was a woman named Mamie Ballard who was hit by a white motorist um, in, um, I believe, 1965 or 1966. After she's hit, students annually begin staging a protest um, around the anniversary of her being hit. She survived, and she's still alive. She's now uh, Dr. Mamie Ballard Crockett, and I had the wonderful pleasure of, of getting to know her over the last couple of years. Um, and they would stage these protests demanding the closure of John R. Lynch Street through the middle of campus. But just close the street. <laughs> Let's don't have it run through the middle of our campus, and we'll end this problem. And those protests really, particularly after 1966 and the Meredith March, which is the advent of black power, right? The term black power gets coined on that march by Willie Ricks and Stokely Carmichael of SNCC. The, the tenor of those protests become 
more militant, but that's a term I want us to be careful with how we use because it, it, it certainly is more aggressive, but I don't mean it in a necessarily a violent way. And I think it's been misused in, in, in a way to mean violence. Um, but certainly more aggressive with, and more assertive. Absolutely. And, and not willing. These were not nonviolent protesters. This was a situation that by 1970, black students would have rocks ready to throw back at white motorists who threw rocks at them right, to defend themselves, yes. um, which, you know, is there's a whole nother story to here. But um, the protests that had been happening included the night of May 14, 1970, someone who, and we don't have evidence to indicate that it was a Jackson State student, someone had commandeered a dump truck and parked it in the middle of John R. Lynch Street by campus, a couple of blocks off campus, and set it on fire. We don't know who did it, but it was meant to block the street to stop the traffic from coming. This is a pretty militant response, right? Um, and yet the response from um, state and city authorities was not to send firefighters to put out the truck. Instead, they sent Mississippi Highway Patrolmen and city police in full riot gear accompanied by what was called the Thompson Tank. The Thompson Tank was purchased by the segregationist mayor of Jackson, Alan Thompson, ahead of Freedom Summer in 1964 and what he called the invasion of Freedom Summer. It's a fully armored personnel carrier. And so they come on campus in the middle of the night of Thursday, May 14th, 1970, in full riot gear. 70, 70 of these officers? Yeah, I forget what the exact number is, maybe 68, 69, somewhere in there, right? Um, and they are fully armed, and they approach campus. At the time they are approaching campus, there are no protests going on. You have the truck that was burning several blocks down, down the street, but they pass the truck, and they come up on campus. Now, it's close the to midnight. The students are hanging out. It's close to midnight on a Thursday night. They're hanging out in front of a women's dorm, doing what college students do in front of women's dorms on Thursday nights, flirting, talking. Some of them may have been drinking beer. I don't know. They're hanging out, right? But they were not protesting. There were no protests going on. The police turned onto Alexander Hall, the women's dormitory, and the reports are that a student threw a bottle at them. The police claimed that there was a sniper in the women's dormitory which was completely erroneous, totally made up, meant to justify their, their actions that followed. So that ended up being fictitious. Totally fictitious and, and disproven, right? And, and absurd. A, a sniper that was just hanging out in the women's dorm because they thought that at some point city police and highway patrol would march on campus? Fifth floor. Right. How, how would they have known? <laughs> like, were they doing that every night for five years waiting for that to happen? Um, uh, and so totally fictitious, but we do know a bottle was thrown at them. And when the bottle broke, the police opened fire and they fired over the span of 28 seconds, more than 400 rounds of ammunition um, into the women's dormitory and into, in the every, dormitory into the dormitory and in every direction and not at the supposed sniper. So they were aiming at the students on the ground. So the um, ones that were hit were on the ground. Yes. They, they were just hanging out on the ground. Um, there are, 12 um, young people who are shot um, and injured and who survive. And there are two who were murdered. Miraculously, only two were murdered. Um, Philip Gibbs, who was a junior. Plus rounds in 28 seconds. Yeah. And um, 
interestingly, there is um, audio recordings through the, the police audio of the shootings. And you can sit, if you go to the National Archives, um, and you can get this, and I've heard it before, and you can listen to this happening over 28 seconds. If you just close your eyes for 28 seconds and imagine that happening, you can understand the horror um, of what was taking place. But Philip Gibbs is shot in front of Alexander Hall. He dies. Um, a junior law student. Junior political science major. Unmarried. Got, got married. Had a, had a young wife. And, and, and what I learned this past year from his widow was that they did have one son. And she was pregnant at the time with her second son, but didn't know it when he died. And so when Philip died, she finds out about 10 days later that she's pregnant with their second child. Um, so he never knew um, that he was about to have a, another son. The, the second young man who's killed is James Green, who was a, a senior at local Jim Hill High School. And he was so he wasn't a Jackson State student. No, he was a high school student who was walking home from work on the opposite side of the street which meant that the police turned around and fired in the complete opposite direction of where they claimed the sniper was. Not just at the women's dorm, they fired in every direction. And that's where James Green was murdered. No one was ever arrested. No one was ever charged. Like the stories Jerry Mitchell was telling us. And, and because of the timing of it, literally 10 days after the Kent State shootings, it gets absorbed into a narrative where the lives of these people has been um, largely forgotten in, in the larger narrative. I don't want to say forgotten by all of us because there's many of us who are fighting hard to, to remember those lives. And we've done some work. COVID, of course, gotten in our way big time. We have launched some exhibitions about the survivors. We actually have a digital exhibition about some of the survivors, um, some of the people who were shot and others. Um, that's available online um, now. Thinks we had to move to digital formats for just about everything. But we had been planning for about 18 months. I was leading a commission um, for the 50th commemoration of the Gibbs Green tragedy at Jackson State. This was a wide-ranging commission of shareholders from a, a many different walks of life, including um, survivors, including family members, including alums, including students, including current faculty and staff, and um, uh, and we had been meeting monthly for 18 months, um, planning a whole series of events that uh, and exhibitions and an oral history project around Gibbs Green, and all of that gets derailed, essentially, in March. Um, because of we, COVID. Because of COVID. Yeah. And we were making uh, plans for a major commemoration uh, around the 50th that was going to include a very special commencement this year. The class of 1970, when the shootings happened, they were approaching commencement themselves. And the campus was, of course, closed and graduation was canceled. They all received their diplomas in the mail. And so they didn't get to have a graduation. And so this year at Jackson State's commencement, we were going to honor the class of 1970. And they were all going to get their diplomas and get to march across the stage in cap and gown. Um, and, of course, that got derailed, too. I sure hope that that still gets to happen at some point. The, the class of 2020 and the class of 1970 now have this incredible tragic bond, yeah. right? Now, to their credit, the leadership at Jackson State is committed to, to having a commencement at some point for, for them. Who knows yeah. but when speaks, if that'll be, be able to happen. This speaks to something that I think is vital. 
And that is that through someone like yourself, who through your upbringing, uh, through your uh, education, through the mentoring of, of people along the way, your own grappling, obviously your own grappling with faith and your own grappling with the meaning of all of this, you've come to a place where you've said, I can employ these gifts this way to make a difference that makes a difference. So I know a lot of times people are, are, are thinking, okay, I, I want to be an ally in, in bringing justice. I mean, you know, the, the, the Lord through the prophet asked the question, what does the Lord require? And the very first thing is that we would do justice, right? And love mercy and walk humbly, right? And then uh, in the ministry of Jesus, he, he makes this statement, of all the things you would prioritize, right? Prioritize justice and mercy and, and faithfulness. So we come from a rich heritage where justice is elevated, right? Through our faith, through our social interaction. So, so people say, yeah, I get it. You know, through my own uh, faith grappling, I, I believe it. I want it. I want to be an ally. But then I know right now, Robbie, I hear it from my friends. I see it in my own family where people want more. They want to take another step beyond just being an ally. They want to engage. They want to take action. Um, what would you say to, to people who want to take that next step uh, still, still being a, a, what we might call an ally or a co-conspirator or a co-laborer, whatever you want to call it, but they want more. What would you say to people who want more? You know, all of us who come to this moment and to this work have a journey, right? We don't just kind of get plopped down into the middle of it. We all come to it from somewhere, and we have to we have to come to our activism on our own terms. And, and, and that's, that's a slow process. And so people who, most people don't have an entire lifetime of, of living in and around activism and activists like I've had to get to the moment where I am today and, and, and the work that I get to do. But we can always begin to, everybody can begin to do something and they can begin to do more than what they're doing already, yep. right? None of us are gonna change this thing by ourselves. But we can all do something more. And to your point about being being an ally, I think that is one step in a process of becoming really an activist. And I do think we have to be more than allies. Being an ally, I, I think, is ultimately too passive. It's not just to stand by and say, we support you and we, we stand in, in solidarity with you. That's one important thing for us to do. But those of us who benefit the most from the power structure, white supremacy, it's incumbent upon us to demand that the system changes because we're the ones who benefit the most from yes. it. Yeah. And if those of us who, who benefit the most from it demand that the, this thing changes, then it might actually begin to change. How do we get into it? How do we begin that, that, that journey, right? I, I think people, as they're grappling with this, should really think about what they care the most about. And, and find a way to insert themselves, right? And, and, and is it public education? Is it poverty? Is it um, the right to vote? And I do think our elections may be in danger in November and the, the threat to the right to vote. Um, 
is it any number of social justice issues and causes and, 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 and issues around just fundamental human dignity and the recognition of the human dignity of all people that people can plug into? And, and, I, and I really think that's each, each person's own individual journey. And what is it that you're inspired to do? And just doing something will make a difference. And all of these little differences that we begin making add up to something larger. Yeah. And, and as you begin that journey and as you step into it, you'll find other places to plug in. Yeah. I know that has been my experience at Jackson State. You know, right. As I arrived there 12 years ago, slowly but surely, I find myself drawn in about a million other different directions and calls right. and, and always happy to, to do what I can to join in and to support. Sometimes to the chagrin of my staff at the Margaret Walker Center in COFO, we find <laughs> ourselves in a, a, a lot of different causes and, and work, but no, I have great people who work with me and, yeah. uh, and we care deeply about the work that we do. So I, I think it's part of the journey for everybody. I think if you can examine what you care about the most and, and where you think you can plug in and just slowly you know, begin that process uh, from initially being an ally. I, like I said, I think that's an early important step to step up and say, I want to be supportive yeah. to, I want to do something. Yep. And that's going to be different for everybody. You know, I think that's an incredibly powerful place for us to kind of draw our conversation to a point. Um, I, I heard someone make a comparison that was very powerful to me that, Moses was an ally up to a point where he had to make a decision to engage. Right. Right. And the, the person asked this question. If you went throughout history and uh, you looked at uh, uh, Jesus Christ, would you, would you say, well, you know, he's a good ally? Yeah. <laughs> you think, oh, well, no, I mean. He, not, quite, not quite adequate enough to describe right. Jesus Christ. And something I've loved that you've said many times, Robbie, is you've said, you know, nobody can do everything, but we can all do something. We can all get engaged. And I also love what you said about, hey, say yes to something, get involved, and then other doors open up. And just like uh, I know for another conversation, another time, uh, I would love for uh, you to come back on the podcast and talk to us very specifically about your engagement in local education. You serve on the school board uh, there in Jackson, and I know you're deeply engaged in that work. And I would love uh, at another time for our listeners to hear that journey, because I think sometimes, Robbie, when we can hear how someone else did it, it kind of sparks in our own mind, hey, let me raise my hand, let me volunteer for something, and I would like to make a difference. Is there, is, anything, is there anything you'd like to say as we close out our time together? Yeah, this has been great, Don. I always enjoy getting to see you and uh, spending a little bit of time with you, and I'd, I'd be happy to come back on anytime. And I do hope there is a point in our future where we can gather together again in person. Come on. People can start coming back to Jackson, coming to COFO, coming to Margaret Walker, come learn about the work we're doing and we'd be, be happy to have you. So stay safe, stay good. Thank you so, so much, man. And, and I do want to say that we're going to be posting in the chat. Uh, you'll notice that we'll be posting the website for uh, uh, the Margaret Walker Center and also for COFO. We will also post a link to 
Dr. Luckett's uh, op-ed in the New York Times. I think that'll be very informative uh, for you. And again, we want to say thank you so much to Robbie Luckett. I want to say thank you to all of you who have joined us uh, for the Love First podcast this evening. Please allow this conversation to catalyze courageous conversations that you will have to revolutionize the way we love. Thank you so much for joining us. Remember to like, subscribe, and share, and we'll see you next time. Love first, I know.